From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So here we are talking about the UK property market yet again. What we're trying to figure out, because let's face it, it's a national obsession, much like the weather, is where house prices from here go, and also trying to figure out what happens to commercial real estate. Welcome to In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the City of London. I'm Francine Lacqua. Now this week, a temperature check on really where things stand for both houses and offices across Britain, and exactly how scary are things looking. For that, we bring in the experts, senior reporters Jack Sitters and John Stepek, and Sue Munden, a senior property analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. John, you've been to Barcelona. (laughs) So you're basically not that happy about being back because the weather is not as good as it could be and the house prices are probably higher. Did you do any property porn looking? Actually, I did. Did you? I did. I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that because, uh, you know, I should be above these things. But um, no, we stayed in a really nice bit of Barcelona. And it was like one of these nice kind of like town flats. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder how much this is. And then when I realised it was two million euros, I was like, <laughs> what? No. John, I only trust people that do that. I mean, if you go on holiday and have a nice time, why would you not, you know, pop by the estate agent to have a look at how much prices are? It's true. It's just I like to try and be zen about these things. You know, just enjoy my holiday, take a break from worrying about property prices. John, your newsletter is a bit scary, right? Because it talks about <laughs> the UK housing market once again being in the balance. Mm. Good or bad? Well, I mean, it depends, doesn't it? It's like, if you're looking to buy a house, then that's probably for better. But I mean, look, overall, we're too, I think the UK economy is too uh, driven by kind of the, the property market. Or, or not even driven by it, but it's, it's kind of held back a bit by the perception that basically that's the only asset that's worth investing in in this country. And that from a, a retail investor point of view. So I think that that's a, that's a bad thing overall. In terms of where we are with the housing market, it's kind of a, a kind of standoff. So on the one hand, like if you told I think everyone in this room that interest rates would go from one percent to over five percent in eighteen months this time last year, you would think A probably would be in a big recession and B house prices would have cratered. And that hasn't happened. Like house prices are down about four, three, four percent from the peak in August. More like twelve percent if you take inflation into account. But you know, they haven't crashed. The only thing that has kind of crashed is transactions. Also, sellers don't want to pay and buyers don't want to sell at the prices that sellers can afford now. And that's basically because obviously mortgage costs have gone up. So sellers just simply can't raise as much money to buy houses. And really what happens next kind of depends on if the labour market stays firm and obviously wages were very strong today as we're recording this, then that means there probably won't be any forced sellers. But the longer this goes on for, you know, the longer you have to expect, well, something's got to give. And presuming the interest rates stay at least where they are for a prolonged period of time, which they, it's very hard to see how they wouldn't. The thing that's got to give is 
buyers deciding, well, okay, maybe we have to knock a bit off prices now because you know, otherwise we're not going to be able to move. Um, so that's kind of how I would see it unfolding. But in, in terms of house prices and, you know, house price dynamics, I guess in support of higher prices or certainly not a cratering, there's also this funny supply and demand that in the UK, you know, we just don't have enough supply out there. And you're right, if, if wage prices go up, then you feel comfortable that you can, you know, maybe spend a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, well, this is the other, this is the kind of, the thing supporting prices as well. As long as jobs stay firm, then somewhere like London particularly, and obviously I think probably London looms large over the general perception. But if it's a choice between renting for a ridiculous monthly payment, then most people are going to sit down and say, well, how can I turn my ridiculous rental payment into a ridiculous mortgage payment? Um, and at least then I get the sense that I'm actually going to own a place at some point. Now, that perception is not necessarily always the case. It's kind of complicated and you need to think about your personal circumstances. But I can see that there's a pressure there because people feel caught between a rock and a hard place. I mean, physical supply and demand questions are really interesting one. My view tends to be that interest rates are the main factor driving property prices simply because it's, it's basically it's kind of like a bond. You know, it's like it's meant to yield a certain amount. And when interest rates go up, you need it to yield more. Therefore, the capital value should come down. But obviously, in certain places, there simply aren't enough houses because, you know, everybody wants to live, you know, everybody like, everyone likes to live in zone one, you know, <laughs> um, exactly. And you say rent prices are crazy. I mean, they've gone up some 30%, right, in yeah. certain places in central in, London. Yeah, in London. I mean, the, the one thing I'd point out about London is that uh, prices did also kind of collapse in, during the pandemic. So, although, you know, the last two years have been terrible for renters, 2020 and 2021 were great. I mean, I knew quite a few people in my own experience who you know, ended up, you know, either moving to a much nicer property for the same price or, you know, getting a much better deal on their rent because during the pandemic, the city emptied out. So one reason it's bounced back so much and so aggressively is, is because of that. But also landlords are selling up. So they, you have this... Because of mortgages, because mortgages yeah, are going higher. Yeah, because the thing with landlord mortgages is that if you've got a mortgage as a landlord, it's an interest-only loan. And so as interest rates go up, your mortgage kind of goes up at the same pace as them. Whereas if it's a repayment loan, you don't go up by as much. So like, you know, if you if you had a buy-to-let mortgage at 2% and it's now 6%, your monthly payment has trebled in that time. So a lot of landlords are finding that their cash flow negative basically by the end of the month. And that's been reflected in actually the repossession figures and also in the sales figures. One of our colleagues, Damien, just wrote a piece about um, landlords selling up at a much more faster rate than people expected. The problem is it's not first-time buyers who end up getting those properties necessarily. A lot of the time it'll either be either cash-rich landlords or it'll be possibly first-time buyers, but then you're talking about these properties might have been multiple occupancy ones. So you've still got that kind of bottleneck there, which means that the supply of rental property falls and you still have a large number of renters who want to rent. In fact, the number of renters who want to rent goes up because people think, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off buying in case prices fall. So is that, that is kind of horrible, actually, if you're in that situation. Can I ask you a question yeah. about the landlords in renting? Because obviously there are new EPC standards coming through. And at what point do you think maybe the landlords, when, when they're making the decision on that 6% is looking pretty tough, do they sort of think, well, I've actually got to put quite a lot more capital into mm. my yeah. property as well? For us mere mortals, 
What is EPC? Oh, sorry, that's the environmental controls that the government is putting on. The first phase of that came in in April, and it phases up so that you've got to be an A or a B, which is quite environmentally friendly by 2030. So it's only going to escalate. Um, and it's affecting commercial real estate, but I just wondered if it was also a trigger potentially for landlords moving out of the market because they're a bit scared. Some of those buildings that are rented out really do need some upgrades, don't they? I definitely. No, and you're absolutely right. In fact, it was interesting because uh, Damien's piece that I mentioned earlier, they kind of going back through the HMRC stats, they found that the buy-to-let sell-off, if you like, actually started in kind of early 2021. So before interest rates became such a big issue, and I think at least part of that is driven by the environmental standards because they are having to upgrade. And there is also, obviously, there's a general, if you like, regulatory hostility to the small landlord now. I mean, that started way back with George Osborne's tax changes. So um, while I have to be absolutely honest, my sympathies for landlords are not high because there's an awful lot of bad actors in the sector. It is not absolutely not the time you kind of be an amateur landlord or be thinking of getting into it. So no, I, I think you're absolutely right. So the EPC is definitely an issue as well. But in commercial real estate, I guess the way that the deals are structured, there's so much more leverage, they'll be much more sensitive to interest rate increases. Yeah, there is a broad span of that. Um, in the listed arena, the shareholders have been on and on about being highly leveraged for the UK REITs for some time now. So even though you would be allowed to have normally on a loan covenant a 60% loan to the value of the property, a lot of the main REITs that were down in the 20s ahead of going into this period, and now they're creeping up to the 30s and moving into the 40s. And it's the commercial real estate companies that had sort of 40% or more going into this that are the ones where the stress is really showing. In the private markets, quite often they would go to that covenant. So I think that there is going to be signs of distress and certainly the REITs are starting to say that, you know, there's some of that coming out. But um, I think, Jack, you'll probably agree with me on the operational side, you know, the properties which have got the good EPC ratings um, that are environmentally friendly, that are brand spanking new, they're filling up. But 70% of what's vacant at the moment across central London, for example, where vacancy is 8.5%, I think, and 38 in the West End and about 12% in, in the city, I think. There's the numbers. You know, that's all concentrated in the secondhand property that hasn't been upgraded. It's looking a bit um, down at heel. And secondhand property basically, Jack, just means where you've had a lease and you're what, the, the second tenant? So it could be an yeah, old building, a, right? Anything that isn't the sort of the best, newest space. So, you know, probably, and, and that definition of what is the best space is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. So what location? So very centralised locations. So if you, if you look at some of the big companies that have moved recently, um, HSBC, for example, they've gone from Canary Wharf, they've chosen to come into the city. So yeah, more central locations, similar for Clifford Chance, huge law firm who are out in Canary Wharf, they've come into the city as well. You see a bunch of companies coming from sort of West London. You know, if you ever drive out of London on the M4, you see all those great big office buildings. A lot of the companies that use that type of space, they've started to move in as well. And that's, it's, I think there's a number of different factors here on the sort of occupational side. I guess one of the um, realizations that companies have had after the pandemic and this whole experiment with more flexible working is 
well, why don't if people are going to be in the in the building less, maybe we need less space, but therefore we can afford to spend more on better space that will attract people in. So more amenities, you know, an easier to get to location, trying to incentivize people to come in. And overall, your cost probably doesn't change that much. I mean, it's also it's a very long term trend that's always worth bearing in mind is 40 or 50 years ago, rent would have been a lot of businesses highest cost. Now it's tiny relative to labor costs. I mean, the, I think um, in, in the city, it used to be something like 40 or 50% of the average business cost would be on rent. Now it's more like 5%. So it actually, in terms of sort of staff recruitment and retention, spending a bit more to get a better office can be quite a good investment for businesses, you know, because if it means you lose fewer staff, ultimately that's that's pretty good for your bottom line. But Jack, that's a crazy number. So from 40% cost, it's, it's gone down to 5%. Is this because everything else has become more expensive? Yeah. Or rents in London also has, have come down? In real terms, they've come down. I mean, rents are very cyclical. To come back to something we were talking about earlier, it's been it's been a really interesting year covering commercial estate. Because this time last year, you could start to see, you know, uh, the writing was potentially on the wall. Rates were starting to you know, ratchet up pretty quickly. And I remember hitting the phones, calling various people who've seen plenty of cycles and speaking to a you know, senior private equity real estate investor. And he was like, look, you know, every real estate crash, every commercial real estate crash is, is typically defined by a surfeit of cranes or a surfeit of credit. And we haven't seen that this time. So I'm not too concerned. But We've also never seen a monetary policy shift as rapid as as we have this time. And so actually in the UK, the repricing, the sort of correction that we had, particularly in Q4 last year, but that, that did continue into Q1 this year, is the fastest we've ever seen. It's, you know, more vertiginous than the GFC. Not as deep, but the, the rate of decline has been more quick. But at the same time, as Sue mentioned, the operational kind of fundamentals are actually pretty good. There isn't that much excess supply that hasn't been that much building you brexit put people off developing have been a whole, a whole and then and then the pandemic as well so there isn't loads and loads of kind of excess new space coming to market and the uk on the public side the uk reits have, been, have kind of learned their lessons in the gfc most of them came into this cycle with relatively low leverage i mean it's quite different when you compare it to the continental public landlords a lot of them have come into this with you know 40 or 50 percent uh, leverage and that's going to get much uglier, I think. But I think the UK REITs broadly, certainly on on the office side, have have been quite well behaved when it comes to leverage. Um, actually, though, but I've just been looking at some of the stats um, for Central London that Derwent London, one of the the big London REITs, put out in their presentation for their results last week, and it is quite scary if you look at the take up and you look at the new starts. Um, new starts on site in the second quarter of this year were really strong. And we've got a supply situation where there is 45% more space than the normal average being completed this year. To what, central London? This is central London offices. 45% so, more, and a lot of that has not yet been let. Is that why I'm seeing like 25 cranes out the office window? It could be refurbishments, <laughs> all sorts of things. I think it's probably smaller properties. But there's a lot of landlords have obviously put some money into that. Now, new starts this year, you can see, okay, well, that will be delivered in 2025. If I've got the funding for it, then I'm going to be delivering into perhaps a better market. That's what they're thinking. I'm not sure I entirely agree with them because I think this this might actually go along. But in terms of take-up in the first half of the year, it's 35% below the normal level. So you've got disappearing on both sides. Um, rent in the city stayed flat, um, about £70 a, a square foot a year. And in the West End, it's been creeping up. 
So you've got all these different things going on and it's really hard to see how it's going to go. So on the sort of capital market side, the fact that the UK and London in particular has corrected so quickly is a good thing. Because what you're seeing in continental Europe where prices have, haven't adjusted to interest rates and kind of everyone knows where they're going, but nobody's admitting it yet, means you've just got this total standoff between buyers and sellers where in the UK, because prices have corrected and that was sort of probably aided and abetted by what happened last autumn with the mini budget and all the rest of it, there is a sort of pool of buyers who are sat on the sidelines and we've had a few false dawns this year where everyone thinks that rates have peaked, you know, and then you get a, a hot CPI print and suddenly expectations move out a bit. But as, as soon as there is a bit more certainty, a bit more confidence that, you know, the BOE has gone as far as it's going to go, I think you'll, you'll see quite a few buyers jump back in. And uh, to, to your point around the um, increase in, in construction starts, Deloitte put out a survey twice a year on it called the Crane Survey. You know, literally, you know, measuring the number. That's of a LACWA survey. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I, I count them as I um, come into the office every day. And and the striking thing from looking at the most recent one of those is that it's massively all those new starts are massively driven by refurbishments. And I think a lot of that is the EPC thing that we were talking about earlier. So same for offices. You're not going to be able to rent them out at all unless they're this A or B. Uh, by 2030. Now, whether the government sticks with that is another question. But so there's loads of landlords who are sitting on properties that, you know, with leases that are coming to the end of their life or have just come to the end of life that are currently rated C, D or an E. And so they're like, well, we're not going to be able to rent this unless we improve it. But so, so what happens to these massive buildings and projects? I know HSBC got a lot of people talking because first, it, you know, it was seen as kind of the, the great hybrid project of people coming into work. So as Jack said, you need less office space. But also, it's a huge tower. Like, what what happens to the HSBC tower? Who's going to rent it? Those are really difficult questions. Um, the way that it's structured um, for an office and the size of the floor plates means that it's very difficult to convert that into residential. That you know, you're used to having all the wires under the you know in between the floors. And I'm not an architect. I don't know all the construction details. But my understanding is that you know it's very difficult. So it's almost more economical to pull the whole thing down and build something else. But on top of that, you've got to get the planning for it too. Um, so it will take quite a long time. So you've got a long period where your money isn't going to be generating any cash. So you know there are quite big constraints towards that. And I'm a bit worried about Canary Wharf. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, that's a sort of very particular case, or in, in fact, not just Canary Wharf, but those types of very late 90s, early 2000s sort of banking towers are kind of white elephants. I think on the conversion thing, if you think about a big, deep trading floor, you, you just can't really convert it into flats because everybody needs a window, <laughs> unless you had a whole load of like very, very narrow, long flats where the back of the floor For the children. Be, yeah, really dark. <laughs> so <laughs> that doesn't really work. I mean... In Canary Wharf Group's case, they're very well capitalised. You know, it's owned by Brookfield and Qatar. They've got a lot of real estate acumen. You know, they will. They've and they've seen this coming for a long time. So they are gradually repositioning that estate. I think they'll they'll be okay. But you've got some individual, you know, overseas investors who came in and bought what they thought was a trophy asset that maybe had ten years on the lease to you know Moody's or S and P or whoever it was. And now it's got five years on the lease and they don't necessarily have the skills to reposition that. And that's where you're seeing, starting to see those pockets of distress. You know, there's a couple of big buildings in Canary Wharf that are owned, were owned by a Chinese investor that are now in the hands of receivers. Um, and I, I think it'll be those investors who bought 
just for the income who don't really have the skill set to reposition those where that'll be more difficult. I think I think the solutions, you know, th there'll be some life science space. That's one area where the UK is doing well. There's a big shortage of lab space. Again, there's a whole load of technical issues around which buildings you can change into lab space and which ones you can't. And that's to do with floor to ceiling heights and loading and all this sort of stuff. But some of them that will work. Some of them will work for residential conversion. But yeah, the big skyscrapers like HSBC, that's a that's going to be really interesting. I th my understanding is some of the options that Qatar are looking at there are things like putting in a huge auditorium so that the, all the tenants on Canary Wharf Estate could share some lab space, some flexible office space. It'd be a kind of a bit of a mixture, a bit of a vertical village type thing, but it's not it's not easy. Um, and there's there's a lot of big towers out there that are not fully occupied. You know, they, they might have somebody that currently pays the rent for the whole building, but they're not using the whole building. And when those leases expire, there's going to be a question about who takes them on. If you look at interest rates, if they go out, does it make a huge difference to residential if interest rates go to 5.5 or or 6% and above? Or is that really the, the kind of stress that we'd see in commercial more than residential? It's probably not as quick for residential. And I said, well, one thing I thought was really interesting was the point about cranes and credit. Because the other thing about the residential market is it is a similar story. And uh, I mean, obviously, there's never enough supply in the UK. But in terms of the credit side of things, you know, unlike 2008, the borrowers were not overstretched going into this particular crisis. So one of the interesting things about how Britain obviously was kind of at the centre of the 2008 financial crisis, it sort of meant that we spent the last 15 years deleveraging in a lot of ways. Um, and it's mainly only the government that's levered up on behalf of everyone else. <laughs> so I mean, the consumers and businesses were in a better state coming into this. So in a funny kind of way, that's why we haven't had the sort of demolition you would have expected from rates moving so yeah. quickly. And, and on the supply side, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's rates are definitely the kind of fundamental driver for house prices. But supply is part of the picture. And when you look at the you know, the listed house builders, they've all massively taken their foot off the accelerator in terms of, you know, how much they're planning to build um, and, and get the, the proportion of homes in this country that are built by the big four house builders is really unhealthily high. So when those guys say, right, you know, we're risk off, then that'll have a very quick impact in terms of overall uh, new supply. I mean, the, the idea that we've got a 300,000 Houses a year target. We're not going. We haven't. We haven't been hitting that anyway. <laughs> yeah, but, we're going to be yeah. so far off that over the next few years because they they really have. You know, again, they were very badly burnt in two thousand and eight. They had these huge land banks that they had to write down massively, and that was really ugly. Again, like the REITs, I think the house builders largely learned their lessons. They've had you know smaller land banks. They've been more quick to slow down on on new land acquisitions. But yeah, the the upshot will be that you'll have the added impact of lower supply that'll just help prop up prices even more. Yeah. So I have 10 million to give away to each of you. Where do you, 10 or, I'm so generous, maybe 20 million. Where do you put it? Where do you invest it in, in real estate right now, John? <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. Although, actually, because one thing I was going to say is the other good thing is that all the listed stuff, so the house builders cratered and, you know, like, and still very low, and the rates also kind of collapsed. And that's one of the nice things about the equity market and the, obviously it discounts all the carnage. And then when the carnage hasn't quite materialised, so actually, I mean, 
This is not personal advice. But I would probably <laughs> this think is definitely not million personal advice. <laughs> you know, like the house building and the REITs kind of like set yeah, up potentially. You're not buying stuff. You're not buying a property. You're you're <laughs> investing. The property sales. Okay. 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 Yeah. This is yeah. the way I most regretted being restricted. Like yeah. you see where these REITs yes, are trading. It's like you know fifty percent plus discounts to NAV. Mm. But in order. You know, prices would have to fall so far in order for that to not be a good deal. But, but, but I, you know, public markets are public markets, and there's that same argument has been there for months and months. Yeah, like, it has why been there for months. Yeah. But at some point, yeah. it will. And you know, people who are brave and willing to go and buy some property stocks now will probably, <laughs> again, not not investment advisors. There's potentially a lot of upside there. I can't believe you answered all of that seriously. I mean, I was expecting someone to say, I'm, I'm making Prosecco in Scotland so because of climate change. <laughs> Such miserable answer. I'm sorry, Friday. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sadi with help from Jill Namazzi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Jack Sitters, Sue Munden and John Stepek. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.